So we like walked through this business problem together. And at the end of it, he was like, you know what, Sammy, I just want to tell you something. I was like, what? He's like, never in my life have I had a job where I haven't had the Monday blues. He's like, Univoice is the first company where I'm thrilled to jump into the work week and I can't wait for Monday every single week. This is Seeking Startups, a show that gives you an inside look into the minds of ambitious people who are changing the world. Learn about what they're building, their personal stories, and invest in founders you believe in. Now with equity crowdfunding, anyone can invest in early stage private startups. So listen up, because you might just discover the next unicorn. Hey, I would like to quickly say that everything you hear in this podcast is for educational purposes only. This is not financial advice, and I'm not endorsing this company. Please do proper due diligence before investing in any startup. Okay, now with that out of the way, let's get started. I'm your host, Maxim Davis, and today on Seeking Startups, we have Sammy Hallaby, the founder of Univoice. Sammy is building Univoice, an app that helps people learn new languages through music. Sammy has been fascinated with languages from the very beginning and has learned five languages professionally up to this point. Learn how Sammy's upbringing influenced him to start Univoice and how his family influenced his entrepreneurial journey. I really hope you enjoyed this founder's unique story. So Univoice is a mobile ed tech startup that I started two and a half years ago. We built the first mobile app that teaches languages exclusively through music. Um, and what I like to call, say is that Univoice is the culmination of my life's work because music and languages have by far been my two biggest obsessions since childhood. Awesome. So I read somewhere that the idea for Univoice started from a side gig where you taught students languages. And for many of the students, you incorporated music to help them learn. Um, Now, I've heard this technique being used in the past, but I don't find it to be very common. So it strikes me as being somewhat unique. Why did you try this approach uh, in the first place? The reason I tried that approach is because when I was self-teaching my fifth language, German, at the age of 16, I went through every single tool and language platform you can possibly think of and nothing really engaged me or maintained my interest. So I would lose uh, lose motivation within a few weeks a month at, at, at best. And with it, I would lose all that I learned very quickly. And one day I stumbled across a German music playlist, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, I don't really remember which platform it was on, but which had a series of different German tracks from a slew of different German genres. And I went from, you know, one artist to the next, to the next genre. And, and in, in so doing, I learned the German culture pretty intimately and inadvertently learned the language as well. In three months time, I was conversationally proficient, which had never happened in my life before. That, that was the highest velocity I'd learned a language. Um, but what was crazy about that is that Number one, not only did I learn in half the time, but number two, my goal wasn't to learn the language. My goal was Mm -hmm. nothing other than to enjoy the music. And so I'm like, huh, this is a way that I can learn in half the time and not even realize I'm learning. That seems pretty interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, three months, that is very quick. I mean, a lot of high school students go through four years, right? And and some of them don't probably get to the level that you did. So you, you just kind of stumbled upon this and then after going through your own experiences that you realized maybe this was more powerful and that's why you decided to try it with some of the students that you were working with? Precisely, that's exactly what it was. Um, what I kind of created a little tagline of like the, the goal to, to learn quickly is to become addicted to learning. And what better way to become addicted to learning than to become addicted to music, which is something that's so easy to do. I mean, right. so many of us can't work without music playing in the background. And so why not just learn a new language in the meanwhile? Wow. So in the beginning, you said that Univoice is a culmination of of your life. So let's go back. Um, Where did you grow up? 
So I grew up between three core destinations. Uh, one is the in the Middle East in Syria and in Lebanon. So it's two separate two separate locations, same region, and then uh, also in the United States in Texas. So pretty dichotomous, right? Like living on one side of the world and then the next, sure. and also one culture that's super communitarian and another that's super individualistic. So it was a a blending of the cultures. I like to say that I was raised on the fault line of culture. <laughs> How old were you whenever? Um, when we were day? young, we would actually travel back and forth all the time. Um, we went to an international school that had a different semester as cadence and schedule that allowed us mm-hmm. to be abroad at pretty much whenever we wanted to and kind of at will. So we spent a lot of my earlier childhood abroad. And then when I was like around middle, middle school, mid of middle school age, uh, that's whenever we would settle down and we would just go back for summers. I paint the picture because to me it's a very unfamiliar uh, part of the world and for a lot of people this too what was what was it like growing up there so it's actually really funny because one of the biggest biases that people have about the middle east is that it's deserty and surely mm-hmm. parts of it are right but so are so in the united states right that we have the same kind of desert climate in certain areas in the arizona uh, new mexico kind of southwest central west regions um, so nonetheless, you know, we were from an we we're from an area in the Middle East, particularly in Syria, uh, called Sueza, and that's in the mountains. It's an hour north of Damascus, the capital, and it's it's mountain climate, mountain weather. So you know, pretty cold, lots of snow. Uh, I mean, up to feet of snow at times. Wow. Um, so yeah, it was just a really interesting thing that people always made this impression, had this impression, made this assumption that just because it's in the Middle East, it was like this deserty, hot climate. The kind of, I guess, environment culturally, um, it was a smaller city, right? Smaller town uh, outside of Damascus. So it was really tight knit, a very tight knit community. The particular city that we're from, Sueza, doesn't have more than several thousand people. Uh, so everyone knows each other pretty well. Everyone knows one another's business. And um, just about at late middle school, going to high school, there started to be like a pretty strong marker imprint of internationalization uh, where you would start seeing those, you know, UK brands, European brands, American brands pop up. Uh, but before that, it was pretty untouched. Uh, it was a very tight knit and closed circuit economy where it was just like our own brands, our own people, not really much influence from outside. I see. So what influenced your family to to come to America? So the goal to come to the United States was to create a better life and opportunity for um, for everybody. So my dad actually did university in the United States. He was the first person to do uh, be approved for an exchange program between the Syrian government wow. and the U.S. government. Um, to yeah to come here and to do university for four years. So it was a pretty cool, pretty cool opportunity for him. Um, but he was he's very much the patriarch of the family, not just for the immediate family, but also the extended family. Uh, he has provided for um, set them up in business when they came to the United States, um, you know, bought them all cars wow. and, and their kids, pianos and dogs and all the things. And um, he really set up his set up shop, not just for his extended family, but of course, for his immediate family as well. So um, that was really the goal is to just create a life for us that he himself uh, never had at a young age. So while you were there, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you were speaking Arabic, right? That's where you started uh, your your language journey, right? You have your Arabic and then you move to America and you have English. And French. Okay. Because <laughs> we went to international right. school, which was French. Oh, okay. So I, yes. see, I see where it's all coming together here now. What 
got you so fascinated in language learning and 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 wanting to to keep trying to to learn? I honestly think it was early exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people ask me, you know, like, what do you feel like about um, the kind of cultural and racial climate in the United States? And I'm like, I feel good about it because there's a lot more exposure, and that's the that's the starting point um, of 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 interest and intrigue and other ways of life and other perspectives and other realities that are equally legitimate to our own uh, not having this exceptionalist mentality that there's one way to live there's one way to govern there's one way to do life no there's many and they're all equally valid uh, and and if you learn that from a young age that's that is the cure-all for exceptionalism because people who feel american exceptionalists for example in the united states and there's exceptionalism of all flavors across the world right but i'm exposed to american most most commonly because i live here um it's it it is only breeded in the environments where there is not early exposure and where you don't see that until you're a teenager or an adult and you form your worldview and you're cemented in it. There's no way that you can that you can leave that once it's that's mm-hmm. what you know. It's mm-hmm. all you know. And so learning from a very young age um, is so critical. Just seeing different perspectives is equal to your own from the age of se- six, seven, eight, nine. That's really where that interest and intrigue starts uh, to um, want to learn about all these different cultures and languages. And that's what it was for me. My parents didn't just teach us these languages in a closed circuit. We traveled the world when we were young and we got to see all these different cultural groups that had completely distinct ways of living and got to go a couple of degrees in, a couple of degrees and layers of complexity in, and seeing the unspoken things that divided the cultures as well. And that's really what would intrigue me about it all is just seeing the way that we take up our imagined space like is so different based on the beliefs that we have about ourselves and others and our relationship with others in our society and our communities. And so just observing people from, from right. that young age, seeing how they moved through space differently, how they interacted with one another differently based on these beliefs is what really intrigued me. Wow. Yeah. I, I know that travel to a lot of people gives them such a perspective and that sounds like that's really what it did. It did for you. Um, going back to your to your family, so your mom is a homemaker and your dad is a serial entrepreneur. He started many companies in the nightlife industry. What was it like growing up in a very entrepreneurial household? The number one thing that I point to when thinking of my father being a serial entrepreneur is that the only stability that we ever knew was instability. Because when you have an entrepreneurial family, it is, you know, feast or famine kind of thing, right? Like you're either absolutely killing it, your businesses are doing really well, or they're not doing so well. And, you know, seeing both sides of the spectrum, I think is what's so special. Because if you only live in one, and you only Mm -hmm. see wealth or opulence your whole life, or you only see like, you know, poverty and need and lacking your whole life, it doesn't really, um, I guess, like provide you with the full range and spectrum of life. Because life is the highs and the lows. It's, it's you know, uh, having a lot, not having a lot. It's those character building moments. So I saw that. I saw that firsthand growing up, how that influenced my father, how it influenced, you know, my, every, every one of us, my mom even, as well as my brother and I. And, you know, you always say like, oh, if we only had a million, you know, a billion dollars, everything would be okay. But I don't believe that. I think that going from extreme wealth to a modest lifestyle, which is the path that our family has has gone uh, through and through, was actually the thing that built such strong character. 
because it's when you've had a lot and then you don't, and then you have, and then you go back to stasis that you form that really rich perspective of this, the whole spectrum of life. And you don't just see things in, in kind of a monolithic way. And that's what creates richness in my opinion. Your father had 34 businesses. Um, <laughs> yes. That's, I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what some of them were like? Were they successful? And how did that influence you? Were there times whenever you were younger and growing up where you're like, yes, I want to be an entrepreneur. And then were there times that you're like, oh no, I, I see what it's like and it's not what I want. How did that whole process, you know, build you as, as, as who you are today? You know, for me, it was like, I kind of lived in the matrix in a sense. It's like, how do you know that you're plugged into a system if you wake up and you're already plugged into the system, right? Like I didn't really have anything like a antithetical to that or even different, a different flavor than that until I was older in life to the point where that was my norm. Like just seeing my father have be this business owner of all these businesses and, you know, super serial entrepreneur lifestyle was all I knew. And so there wasn't really any, any way for me to kind of counterpost an alternative and, and consider that as, you know, a, an interest or a disinterest mm -hmm. of mine. When I got older though, and I was, I was an adult and I started seeing these other paths that people took that were, let's just say more traditional, because I wouldn't see the traditional path as take, starting 34 companies and employing like 5,000 people. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's, you know, it's just cool to see the, the different perspectives. Once again, in the same way that I saw all these different cultural walks and all these different ways of living, I started seeing all these career paths and all these different ways of working. Uh, so to me, I didn't view as one of them as better than the other. I just viewed them as equal and they're, and, and great and bad in their own ways. They all have the pros and cons list, right? So when I, I didn't really realize, I guess you could say how much of an entrepreneurial mindset I had breeded from my father's work until uh, right before I started my company. Because the kind of progression that I had assumed when I started my business was I was just interested in languages and music first. Then I started teaching one-on-one. -on -one. Then I wanted to increase my impact. So I started social media channel. And then I mm -hmm. wanted to explode my impact. So then I started a company. And that kind of progression is not something that I think a lot of people will naturally want to do because they're like, oh, if I just have a lifestyle business make a little bit of money, I'll be happy. But that's just not how I'm bred. Like, I, I just don't think that way. I think of like, how do I scale this impact? How do I impact sure. as many people as possible? How do I like make it go super viral? So that was the kind of perspective I had at a very young age. And I think that, you know, I didn't realize that until I was older. So you went to uh, high school here in the United States, and it sounds like school came very easy to you. You were you graduated valedictorian in high school, and then you graduated in the top 2% at UT Austin. What do you attribute your academic success to? So um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the book, The Emigrant Edge. Um, no. Yeah, so it was written by um, an Irish self-development author, coach, motivational speaker, um, very, very powerful book. And it goes over the seven characteristics that differentiate individuals who emigrate and immigrate into a new country. Um, I believe that it was those skill sets that allowed me to, you know, perform so highly at a young age. Um, things like just an insatiable hunger, an insatiable curiosity, um, you know, desire to make things work, a drive and persistence that's sure. so gritty and unrivaled. Um, 
that I think those unique skill sets were just kind of all together aggregated to to create that context for high performance um, early on in life. And I would really attribute them to that immigrant edge that kind of trickled down to me through my father and his journey. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the show. Before we hear about Sammy's insatiable work ethic, which led him to take a sales job working 90 hours a week, I thought you might be interested in hearing a few stats about Univoice. In the most recent fiscal year, Univoice generated $1,000 of revenue and had a net loss of a little over $205,000. The company is currently headquartered in Austin, Texas. Univoice was awarded top 50 tech innovators and influencers at Intercon 2020. Univoice has sustaining 101% monthly growth in new users and 74% monthly growth in active users as of this recording. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. While you were in college at UT Austin, did you have any jobs? Were you also working uh, besides your studies? Yes, I did have multiple jobs. So um, starting in the first, the conclusion of my first year of college, I became an orientation advisor at UT. We did orientation for 9,000 incoming students, um, maybe even more. I think it was 11 or 12,000 incoming students in five or six waves. So it was it was a lot, uh, but we had about 100 orientation advisors and we would, we would integrate them uh, on campus, you know, show them the way around, show them how to do uh, scheduling and meet with academic advisor and do financial aid. And um, integrate them culturally into the campus as well, team spirit, all that stuff. So that's the first thing. And then I went on to uh, do what Forbes, uh, Forbes Business Magazine, rated as the number one most challenging sales internship in the United States, because I'm a challenge junkie. So that I decided to do that. Uh, it was door to door selling through a company named Southwestern Advantage. We sold educational study guides, which is the equivalent of Spark Notes, but like every single subject in school. Okay. Um, so I sold that and, um, you know, it was 90 hour work weeks, um, really just intense character building type experience. You work every day, whether it's torrential rain downpour or, you know, or, or sunshine. Um, and it was a really very, very edifying experience to say the absolute least. And then I went on to do um, two years of work in sales as well, but a different kind of sales, sales of international internship opportunities through ISAC, an international organization that was started um, after World War II as a peace initiative between 10 European mm-hmm. countries and is now in 180 countries around the world, uh, has facilitated over a million international exchanges. So the goal of which is peace and fulfillment of humankind's potential. So that was obviously very brand aligned with me, loving cultures and languages and sure. uh, sales. So those are the jobs I did. And then the last six months of my college experience, I um, was a server at a steakhouse. Uh, Perry Steakhouse. If you're in Austin, you probably know. So yeah, I've heard of I've heard of yeah. it. So you move on from UT Austin, and eventually you want to try out the the corporate world, I'd say. And so you uh, start uh, a job at Oracle. Um, why why Oracle? So I was between two companies. I knew that I wanted to go into tech and to continue my sales tenure because sales was something that I believe is foundational to your skills and anything else in life. Everything is a sale. I genuinely believe that whether you're selling yourself, whether you're selling an opportunity, whether you're selling yourself to a romantic partner, you're selling a business idea, selling to investors, whatever it is, you're selling all the time. So I really wanted to go into sales and I wanted to do it in tech. I was that between that and Garrison Learman Group, GLG, another company in town, uh, which was a pretty quickly grown startup at the time that I was interviewing and I think still fast growing. I ended up picking Oracle because 
I believe that, you know, working for a Fortune 100 company just affords you so much um, opportunity by way of seeing the inner inner uh, workings of an operation that's super established. I once again had knew that I would always want to go down an entrepreneurial path, but the opportunity to see how the beast moves inside kind of um, sure. was really powerful because then you can transfer that knowledge, the organizational command and understanding the interpersonal, um, you know, dynamics and understanding those um, leadership, team management, culture building, et cetera, all these things just becoming hyper vigilant and see how it's done by the best companies in the world so that you can replicate that for yourself. So that's really what motivated me to work for such a large organization to start out. Do you have any memorable lessons that you picked up while you're uh, at Oracle and that maybe you even use today in, in your company? A hundred percent, 100%. I think that, the, so you know how it is like in life, they say that the most profound things are also the simplest, right? It's like sure. yeah. the no brainer, like, oh, don't eat a muffin if you want to lose weight, like, <laughs> great. Uh, but it's serious, like the things that, you know, you you just are kind of no duh light bulb moments for people are really simple ideas. So a couple of things that I learned, um, one thing for sure that I learned is the importance of tracking, the importance of understanding, you know, an initiative from the standpoint of not just scoping the work, but identifying how you're going to attribute success and being so religious about identifying those parameters for success and creating an infrastructure to track that work and to know, you know, looking back a, a week, a month, a year later, how do you pat yourself on the back? How do you know if you've done a good job or not? I don't know if you've succeeded. So that just like relentless focus on tracking, tracking, tracking everything that you do uh, rather than just running around chasing your tail for years uh, is really critical. I would say another thing that it taught me was um, the important, the, the power of leveraging networks. Um, there was so many different stakeholders at Oracle and so many different things. And I watched some state people really poor at stakeholder management, kind of recreating the wheel and building something that was already built or, um, you know, creating something that there exists a solution for. And if they had just become better network managers and stakeholder managers, they wouldn't have done that work. And they would have been able to leverage that scale that the network around them uh, to, to drive impact and minimize input. So while you were at Oracle, you started Univoice, is that correct? Correct. Okay. And then eventually you did move on from Oracle this year in 2021. You fully committed to Univoice. Can you walk me through this decision? Was it hard? Was How how, how did you make that decision? Yep. So I'm full-time at my startup. Um, I think that, you know, a certain point of growth within an organization, um, you really need to, to prioritize the growth of the company. And... Um, you know, we're a seven person team, uh, not huge, but we're not tiny, right? It, it, there's enough people to more people than can play a game of Monopoly. So that I like to put it. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it, it's at the point where you're, the, you're at that stage, I think it's really critical that you just, you know, invest a lot of your time and effort and your energy into, into the success of the organization, especially after you've raised some money. Um, because whenever you haven't raised money, it's a really, it's a really hard, um, hard thing to do. <laughs> So you were having success and that that was the key or at least part of the decision to move and go fully onto this. I think uh, that, yeah, so I think the success is a part of it for sure. Um, I think that, you know, you need to make sure before you go into a startup like this, that you have a path to 
number one, funding your own life and number two, to funding the startup. Because I think a lot of people have this very like naive perspective where it's like, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. And then you just jump in to, you know, you quit everything in your life and you just jump in a hundred percent. Well, it's like, that's not, that's not a realistic uh, path. A lot of people, you know, will end up failing in that kind of model. You need to really be intentional about how you're, how you're committing to your startup and, and, and how you're setting it up for success. So I would just say, be intentional about that um, rather than, you know, trigger happy and get a little too ahead of yourself. Sure. How did you launch the company? Was, was it something that you've been planning for a while or was it something that you just launched kind of organically? So I started the company because I saw a ton of traction from the YouTube and Instagram channels that I had started uh, where I was teaching languages through music. And about three months in, I was you know getting tens of thousands of views and hundreds of comments on a video. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, there's a, there's a clear market validation. Like this is being, uh, this opportunity is being waved in front of my nose and I would be remiss and ignorant to not capitalize on this opportunity. So that's why I did. Uh, I, I took that step forward and was like, Hey, you know, if I'm not going to do it, somebody else will. Um, so I might as well just get that head start. So that's how it all started. And then I first needed to, you know, identify how I'm going to create an MVP and how am I going to get something out there that like at least a semblance of the user experience that we that we want to promote here and teach languages through. So I started with that, did like a technical you know requirements doc and a scoping of of well I guess a business needs doc, product needs doc, and then ended up working with a technical specialist to turn that into a technical requirements doc because I myself am a non technical founder. But nonetheless, did that and then over the span of three to four months, built an MVP product, um, launched an alpha product. The first quarter of 2019, right after that, I think it was April, roughly, we launched our alpha product, and that was a free version. So it was just come see how we teach languages through music. Very early, you know, mid low to mid fidelity product, not fully finished, but um, did that. And then over the span of a year and a half, through the on start of 2021, we got a ton of traffic from organic channels. We did a, a launch party at the founder of South by Southwest House, which is pretty cool. Louis Black. That's awesome. A co-founder. It was him and, him and another. And then after that, um, we did a ton of just, you know, different events around. Like we hosted a Spanish class in Tijuana. We threw a border. Uh, we called it a concert at the border. Canta la Frontera uh, in Spanish. It was on the border of Tijuana and San Diego. So it was like both musicians and audience from on both ends of the border. So it definitely drew a big buzz. Fun, quick, fun anecdote. I was at a rave, uh, pretty much a rave. I mean, it, identical to a rave. And okay. I got a call from CNN and they were like, hey, we want to cover your event. And I was like, this is literally the worst time on the planet. I'm sorry. Like, I'm like, <laughs> just, I'm like just reach out to my CEO. Like, I can't talk to you. <laughs> so then anyway, so yeah, we just got a lot, ton of different press mentions and coverage and that got us um, some good traffic. And then final step, final organic channel was we got a lot of free uh, banner ads, placements, different digital marketing uh, work from review sites that had written product reviews on Univoice, uh, primarily in the educational space. And so that also afforded us some early users. So we gathered about 4,000, a little over 4,000 users organically in our alpha product. Fascinating. So what is the key problem that Univoice is solving? 
what's the the pain point that uh, you see in your customers that really want this product? The two biggest pain points afflicting e-language learning are a lack of engagement and a lack of long-term retention. The methods that are being used today, all the applications out there, mobile apps, web apps, um, even sometimes physical hardware products, they apply the same rote traditional teaching methods of you know vocab lists, uh, flashcards, conjugation tables, un- uncontextualized robot read practice sentences. These types of approaches, are, neuroscientifically, are not stimulating to the brain, and therefore they're not stimulating to the individual. <laughs> so, something like music, right, which automatically activates those those centers in your brain of learning and make you a- actively receptive to what you're what you're learning, sure, is a solve for both of those pain points. Because not only does that address the problem of the engagement, I mean, once again. We can't live without music. Many of us can't work without music. Um, and this can have a party without music. So it's, it's, it's integrated in the fiber of our society and, and our individual motivations and drivers. And then in terms of the, the long-term retention, neuroscience has actually proven that learning anything, their music, is the most effective way to commit it to your long-term memory as well as uh, to contextually recall it when needed in conversation. So... That's why we create jingles for things. That's why kids learn through nursery rhymes. That's why if you you know want to remember where you put your car keys, you create a little jingle and that will remind you where you placed it because the anchors of melody and rhythm when you're receiving new information are highly effective in committing that to the long-term. So those are the two biggest pain points that we address. Sure. When we come back, you'll get to hear about the hardest obstacle Univoice has faced and how Sammy has been able to navigate around it. But before that, here's how you can personally invest in Univoice. Sammy is currently raising up to $250,000 at a $5.01 million pre-money valuation on WeFunder. Funding is currently open, but is scheduled to close on April 30th, 2022. But if they hit their maximum funding limit before then, the round will automatically close. If you're interested in getting more information, check the show notes where you can find a link to their funding page. Every startup has uh, obstacles and and challenges. What's the hardest obstacle that Univoice has faced? How did you go about solving it? I think the hardest thing to manage as a startup founder is fundraising linearity against products and uh, technical milestones and development milestones. Uh, because you know you have this vision when you start the company you're going to get a million dollar check and you're going to be able to build the organization that you want and have all the the talent and the resourcing needs met etc etc and then you're going to build but that's not it right you you end up getting a $25,000 check here a $50,000 check there and so that linearity is not really on target it's not like a you know the clean 100,000 a month or something. It's like some months you may not raise money and then other months you raise a good amount of money. So just constantly adapting that fundraising cycle to your development and resourcing cycle on needs is is really a challenge because you never really know, you can't predict when you're gonna raise money. So it's like, how do you build this full-fledged product roadmap when one month is drought, the next is feast? It's like- I can't, <laughs> I can't, you know, clairvoyantly assess the situation and and resource accordingly. So a lot of hard decisions, a lot of, you know, hard, you know, sometimes pausing invoices, pausing contracts, sometimes, you know, hiring quickly, like whatever it is, it's just, it's this constant roller coaster 
Uh, and I would say that that's probably the reason why I break that the number one challenge is because it's kind of ever present. It's like the most ongoing one. Other ones that I can cite like content needs or, you know, finding, keeping our talent or whatever, which we've done a really good job at. How have you navigated that challenge? I know you said they maybe had to stop and start some things, but what has been the the best, I guess, solution that you've currently come up with? So I think the best solution is that you have to identify what are all the technical platforms that, that kind of your, your product encompasses that go into building your product. And you need to have one expert on each platform. And you need to create an early understanding, an early relationship with that person. Number one, they understand the nature of the beast. They understand what it means to work for a startup that is unpredictable, it's volatile. And at any given time that we may have to have their hours, we may have to quarter their hours. And as leverage to keep them there, you offset their cash compensation with equity compensation so that they okay. have skin in the game. They know that their, their success is a company's success and vice versa. And so creating that personal context is almost like an individual challenge of like, you know, what can I do? Um, you know, what can I do to further the company so that I can um, get my payday and having that, having each platform owner on your, your tech stack, have that understanding of that volatile nature of startup while also being properly motivated with equity is critical. And then to address the linearity, whenever you have, um, you know, peak seasons, let's say where you fundraise a lot, you hire assistants to those core product, those core platform owners uh, across your tech stack. And let's say like in, you know, there's a lot of mobile work that needs to be done or backend work that needs to be done or front end CMS work, whatever whatever the platform is, you can hire an assistant to them um, either by leveraging their personal networks or by leveraging your CTO's network and always having, you know, like that repertoire of, of potential hires and just hire them on board, maybe for a month, two months, three months, whatever, like a contract for hire kind of thing. And then, you know, as fundraising either dips or as the need for them wanes, then you can just cut off their assistance. But you need to always have that core owner of that platform. I, see. Um, I would say that that's the best way to, to navigate that challenge. What is your vision for the future in the language industry? You look out maybe five, maybe even 10 years. Where do you see the industry going? I think that the next major step is the penetration um, of the new emerging technologies, right? So think like AI, ML, IoT, and it's already started to happen. So think a lot more conversational, a lot more interactive, a lot more curated and personalized uh, experiences. So from the conversational standpoint, uh, you know, being able to have language conversation with a chatbot, whether it's text or or voice. Um, for us, the use case may be singing with your favorite artist on stage, whatever it is. Um, just having more of that adaptive experience where you feel like immersed in it. And it's not just, you know, a piece of paper that says, yo soy un niño or whatever. Um, I think that interaction and that immersion is very much um, the path that, that we're going down. And then on the front of curation and personalization, utilizing adaptive technologies like AI and ML allows you to create a really personal experience for each learner, almost as if they had their personalized tutor. So let's say, you know, for you, Maxim, I see that as, you know, my AI ML software um, has tracked that the syllables or the words that you're having the most trouble with have these things in common. And it's like, hey, this is what you're struggling with. Let's work harder on this. Right. Or um, through aggregated metadata, it could be like, um, 70% of people get this part wrong or good job. You just completed this lesson that 90% of people failed. That's amazing. Right. Just being really like, um, 
kind of more holistic and more personalized in, in your approach of teaching. I think that those are probably the most, most salient trends that will to unfold over the next five to 10 years. Let's move on to your team. So you met your co-founder, Brian Reister through Indeed. Is that, is that right? That was a former co-founder. Yes, we had met. Former co-founder. Okay. Former co-founder. Our current okay. co-founder that's active, uh, Enrique Ortiz. He's our chief technology officer. That was through Indeed. Can you talk about that early formation of the team? So, Brian, mm-hmm. when did he come on and, and why did he decide to, you know, part ways and then move on? We um, onboarded Brian like a year and a half ago, and he was the quasi product manager and then quasi um, technologist, chief technologist as well. That was before we had like a CTO, native CTO on board. Um, so whenever we ended up coming across Enrique Ortiz, our current uh, chief technologist or CTO, he came on board at the start of this year. And as a result, um, there just didn't need to be, I guess, two co-founders of similar function. So he ended up cons- we ended up consolidating the tech and the product team under him. And the next route path that we're going to take on the executive side, at least, is finding somebody who is like more of a growth product management background, like growth marketing meets product management. So it just has, to, you know, absolutely no hard feelings. It just has to do with like the rightness of the fit, like how relevant is it um, to your skill sets and your your past experiences. So uh, we are finding an individual that can round out our executive team who has that because then I have the business operational, um, you know, kind of CEO quasi-CEO, as well as marketing background. Uh, and then we have Enrique, who has the the technical uh, development engineering side of the house down. And the third person that we'd really need in the core product team, or sorry, the core executive team would be the product person that has that growth background. And then uh, the rest of the team, we built through kind of our personal networks, as well as through um, Upwork, Freelancer, those different job boards that uh, exist for finding contractors, uh, as well as some LinkedIn outreach. Speaking about your current co-founder, your current CTO, mm-hmm. um, what did you see in in him that made you certain or, or very confident and um, that he was the right person for Univoice? I like to say, what did he see in us is the first question uh-huh. that I ask because okay. he is... <laughs> Let me just brag. Let me humble brag for him really quickly because he's a person who's very humble. Um, he has 30 years of experience in technology, 15 years uh, in mobile technology, over 10 as a chief technologist. Um, he sits on the South by Southwest Advisory Board for 10 years. Uh, he was named by SAP. Uh, no big deal, like top three largest software vendors in the world, but as the top 50 mobile influencer. Um he has four patents to his name, three books on mobile development and team management. And uh, his team built the Starbucks mobile app. Um, I mean, he's just accolade after accolade. Like he, he's just the guy, right? He's mobile technology, SaaS, it's his freaking life. So uh, it was, that's why I kind of jokingly, you know, pandering back to the question that I asked, why did he, what did he see in us and why did he choose us? And to answer that question for you, He's kind of a sidelines informal advisor for about a year and a half. He was like a, a director over at Amazon and he was unable to participate at the same time and, and do work for us, but he was an informal advisor and he just like saw our growth over the span of almost two years and was just like, 
this is awesome. I want in. Fantastic. There are many different ways that you could get funding for your company. Why why equity crowdfunding? Why did you choose to go down this route? Because of our advisors, <laughs> short answer. We had advisors who were so convinced that like this is the way that like you have a mobile direct to consumer product you need uh, simultaneously evangelists, ambassadors and and investors. What better way than crowdfunding? Like, you know, it, it's different if you're like a middleware technology that's like, I don't know, integrating like different platforms and doing data crunching. Like if things like that, it's super technical and the direct consumer will not be the wiser or really understand how to invest in that or want to invest in that. But it's like, if you have that product that just has that snappy line, learn languages with music, it's targeting the consumer directly. Why not? Why not go and get, you know, not not only users, but also ambassadors, brand ambassadors and evangelists while also getting some investment. You know, starting a startup can be hectic. It can be exciting, have highs and lows. Do you have any memorable stories? Yes, absolutely. The most memorable thing for me uh, on the funny the funny side was whenever we went to a music business conference called Midem in Cannes, France, in southern France. Um, it's one of the largest music business conferences in the world and has all the major publishers and labels, everyone that you'd want to speak to in the music business there, as well as like new music tech startups and music, music tech startups, like everyone that you could think of that's connected to music is there. So that was an awesome experience because like, you know, from the parties at night to all the cool keynote events and, and sometimes they had like this really awesome um, series of artists, like kind of an outdoor concert on the beach, which I've never been to a beach Sounds concert awesome. in my life. And I was like, okay, what the hell? From that to walking into this opulent, you know, this Four Seasons Hotel, like penthouse, uh, to have a meeting with Sony. <laughs> you know, they're, they're like catered really lavish wow. uh, hors d'oeuvres and, and drinks. And um, it was just a very opulent experience. So it, it, it's just, you know, little did I know that like 25 year old me would just like be going into this room full of really important people in South France and partying with them and then going to the casinos. And like, it's just like, what is this? You know, it just, it almost felt like utopian, but also dystopian at the same time. Like it just didn't feel like something that I would ever experience. Um, so there's that. And then I would say the other most memorable thing for me is all the different moments where your team just show immense gratitude and and show conviction in your vision. And one particular conversation that points to, I'm, un, I'm incapable of telling these stories without getting chills, by the way. Um, one of the, the developers that we had on board, his name was Gabe. I was meeting with him on a Sunday um, because he, he wanted to meet on a Sunday. I was like, I you know don't encourage my, my people to work on weekends, but you know he wanted to. So we like walked through this business problem together. And at the end of it, he was like, you know what, Sammy, I just want to tell you something. I was like, what? He's like, never in my life have I had a job where I haven't had the Monday blues. He's like, Univoice is the first company where I'm thrilled to jump into the work week and I can't wait for Monday every single week. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, how, how did that just happen? Like, literally this person just told me that they're eager to start their work weeks because they love the company. 
And that's just an anecdote that's representative of kind of the the whole group thing because everyone's so on fire and in love with the company and what we're doing and what we're achieving in the world and, and they're committed to being a part of that. But I just never expected that you know, you would have this level of commitment and this level of hunger and drive uh, from a vision that you literally started from nothing. It, that's just the most validating and motivating part of this whole thing. Just being able to wake up every day and seeing these people who are committed to something um, that once was just a figment of your imagination. I don't think there's really anything like it. That's fantastic. The last question I would like to ask you what do you think is more important in entrepreneurship? Is it more important to be courageous or intelligent? Courageous. I believe that this really closely aligns with Calvin Coolidge's quote on persistence, um, where he he kind of recounts that the problem of the world is not intelligence, it's not genius, it's not it's not talent. There's a ton of all of those things. But the common thread that unites all the great feats in history and in the future, you know, to eternally is persistence and not stopping and not cowering in the fear, uh, in the face of fear, but powering through it and making fear be your biggest driver. Um, I'm wholeheartedly convinced in that. I don't think this is an opinion. I think it's a fact and it's just been proven time and time and time again. So without question, I would say that courage, determination, and persistence will beat intelligence, talent, and genius any day. This has been an episode of Seeking Startups. I'm your host, Maxim Davis, and thank you for listening to the whole show. Make sure to subscribe and like this episode. Before I let you go, if you're a founder who is interested in getting highlighted on the show, email me at maxim at seekingstartups.com. Once again, thank you. And until next time, keep investing in the future.